This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by New Relic and Amazon Web Services. This week, I chat with Ray Camden about going from cold fusion to serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 64. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm chatting with Raymond Camden. Hey, Ray, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you are a lead developer evangelist at Here Technologies. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and uh, and what Here Technologies does? Sure. I'll, I'll start with Here. Uh, so we do everything involving location. So we have a mapping platform. Uh, we have APIs for routing, geocoding, reverse geocoding. Uh, anything that a developer may need in, gar- in regards to location or mapping, we have technologies and tools for, and people are free to reach out to me later to uh, talk to me about it. Awesome. And your background? Uh, let's see. I've been in development, uh, web, web uh, d- development since uh, 93 or so. Uh, so I've been around for a while. I spent a long time doing back-end work. Last decade or so, more front-end work, and I've been involved in developer relations unofficially for most of that time, because I like to share. I like to give presentations and stuff like that, officially in DevRel for six or seven years or so. Awesome. All right. Well, so if people don't know you, if they, if anybody was ever involved in the Cold Fusion community, you are a legend in the Cold Fusion community. Uh, I, I I was looking through my old uh, I was looking through my old books trying to find um, some of the old books that you had written. I think like Cold Fusion MX Seven. Um, you know, be, you and Ben Forda had so much material out there. I was a huge fan um, and always following the stuff that, that that you guys were doing back then. So I'm super excited to have you on the show um, and. It, what what was kind of funny is I was a cold fusion guy way way back in the day as well. Um, I had a big customer. It was a college that was doing everything cold fusion, and so I learned cold fusion just for that customer. And I actually fell in love with cold fusion. I thought it was a great language, was super easy to use, all kinds of features. Um, but I eventually got away from that, and I really you know wasn't sort of following what you were doing anymore. And then all of a sudden I come around, you know, maybe two years ago, and I see you're working on serverless stuff. So. I, I would love to get that perspective of how you went from cold fusion to serverless. Absolutely. So uh, so I began actually with Perl CGI scripts. Um, back in the old days where there were no real defined roles, I would do everything, HTML, uh, Photoshop work and backend work. And I discovered pretty quickly that I don't make things pretty. And uh, I enjoyed the backend work because like back then, like, having a web page be dynamic was a big deal. Uh, I can remember at college uh, finding some random website that would pick three tarot cards and it was random. And I was amazed by that. And it would take like five minutes to load the images. <laughs> but I would sit there, just reload. And yeah, so I, I, I kind of migrated there and uh, I got into Cool Fusion because I had been doing Pearl CGI's for a while, but we had a client who had a SQL Server system. And I knew that Perl could talk to it, but I also knew that it wouldn't be fun to write that code. And just randomly discovered that ColdFusion supposedly made working with uh, SQL Server and Access, et cetera, uh, it it made that easy. 
that was right. And I kind of fell in love and spent probably a good 15 years uh, doing just cold fusion stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny guys. I have like, I think the pretty, pretty much the same exact background. I started in college with Pearl and CGI. Then I went to PHP and like MySQL and sort of that stuff, but then moved over to Cold Fusion. And I spent many, many, many years with Cold Fusion until I moved back um, to PHP. So when, you know, when you got to the end of that Cold Fusion era, like sort of what, what sort of made you move to like the next, you know, what was the next step after you sort of were done with Cold Fusion? So, I, I remember I, re, I remember when JavaScript came in, um, but like it quickly became hard to use, uh, you know, the whole browser war type thing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, not only with me not being able to design well, uh, the other reason I didn't like doing the front end work because it was such a pain to make everything compatible with IE4 and Netscape 4, et cetera. Uh, so working on the back end, you know, somebody would just hand me HTML and I'd make it dynamic. What kind of got me kind of looking back is I remember I was bored at work. Ajax had been around. Gmail, had, I think, had just come out. So like the whole Web 2.0 thing was like fresh in people's minds. And I had only done a tiny bit of JavaScript over the years. And I thought, let me, you know, look at it some more now that supposedly <laughs> things are a little bit better. Um, and I found out that, yeah, things were a bit better. You know, browser dev tools were around. And so I just started doing more work on the client side and I began to realize that having the app server there, you know, primarily because browsers were so horrible, wasn't necessarily the case anymore. There was a lot more that I could do on the front end and without an app server. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that's, I think that was one of the things that was the biggest pain for all of us that were, I mean, I owned a web development company for 12 years. So um, battling with IE6 and all the different uh, browser compatibilities was definitely a huge problem, um, which is why one of the things that I think we did or we did well was build backend applications that would you know completely render the pages. And as you said, as we move towards this more of an Ajax sort of filling things out, and of course now we're into a whole new era with single page apps, you know, and React and Vue and things like that. Um, but what was it though that when, so once you started building some of these more interactive, you know, JavaScript side of things, what were you, were you still using Cold Fusion or did you move to something else for your backends? Well, so it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was still using Cold Fusion, uh, but what I began to notice is that Cold Fusion began to get uh, more and more dumb in terms of what it was doing. So whereas before I was rendering entirely, you know, the, the entire site, it, it uh, began to be just a JSON provider. And one of the things that kind of got me off Cold Fusion is that at the time it did JSON very badly. Um, it would have this wonderful feature where, you know, because it was typeless, it had to make guesses in terms of what your data was. And if you would try to take someone's name, let's say possibly an Asian person whose last name was No, Dr. No yeah. maybe, uh, it would in JSON convert that to false. And you had right. no control over that at all. So, uh, you know, both both seeing how, you know, how small I needed Cold Fusion and see, seeing it kind of fail in terms of generating JSON, uh, that began my migration to more Node.js development. Yeah. And so when you started using Node.js, were you still setting up servers and doing all that fun stuff? Yeah. Um, and it, so, in fact... Uh, what really got me into Node was Express 
because mm. I would like go to like intro to node presentations at conferences and it was 40 minutes of setting up a web server in node and that was cool. But like, you know, having used Apache for a decade, I'm like, I don't want to rebuild Apache. <laughs> right. You know, it, right. it may be slimmer and quicker and I'm doing it by hand and I just didn't want to do that. Um, but seeing Express and seeing it, you know, kind of handle some of that boring stuff behind the scenes and really just kind of get you quicker to building routes and actually building applications, that that's what really kind of nailed it for me. Yeah, and so once once you discovered serverless, and I know we'll talk about the Jamstack a little bit more uh, later on, but once you kind of came to all of that, I mean, because I know for me, building everything out in ColdFusion or PHP or any other language and, and having to deal with the servers and the routes and all that other stuff that you had to build in, yeah. a lot of that goes away. So did you see just like an efficiency gain when you started moving to Jamstack and serverless? Absolutely. So... I mean, Express is pretty slim. It's 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 pretty quick. You know, I can get a server up and running on like four lines of code. I could define a route and then on that route say, you know, do this logic. And the first time I did a serverless function where the route was handled for me, you know, URL and form handling was just passed into me. And I literally, I only did the logic. And I was like, oh God, I'm like never writing a server again. Right, exactly. So, so you go from... Cold Fusion, which was, especially in the beginning, was relatively simple. And if people aren't familiar with Cold Fusion, I think it still exists, right? I think I just looked yeah. and like there's Cold Fusion 2018, maybe, uh, which is now under Adobe. It was uh, JJ and Jeremy Allaire who started it, I think, 99 or something like that. And then it, um, uh, you know, it, it was eventually bought by Macromedia and then Macromedia was bought by Adobe. So it's changed some hands. Um, so you, you're building things on Cold Fusion, and it's this relatively simple thing where it's very much like PHP. You can write a lot of stuff inline if you wanted to. You could do some application components and things like that, but mostly you're writing code inline. So it's a really sort of simple, I build a page, I add some dynamic content to it, maybe I query a database, whatever I'm doing. Very simple, very straightforward, render the page, session management, all that stuff built in. Along comes the Jamstack and along comes serverless functions that are for the most part stateless. And there's this huge paradigm shift, right? You have to think about it sort of a different way in which we build applications. So I'd love your perspective, like from going from something like Cold Fusion and building more traditional applications that were rendered to moving to single page apps and, you know, static sites and then and stateless functions. Like what, like how did you sort of, uh, I guess, uh, Calculate that or, or deal all deal with that complexity in your head. Uh, hard. It was hard at first, you know. Uh, <laughs> on one hand, it was kind of mind opening to say yes, I, I I could have a serverless function that will do whatever logic, and it's just a file and it's just deployed and, and it's good to go. Uh, but like starting to wrap my head around, I used to build a site this way. Now I can build it that way. It was definitely a process, um, and it's still one I'm thinking through. Like I'm blogging right now mm -hmm. about migrating a node. Uh, site to um, serverless and Jamstack, uh, but it it was kind of it was like a bunch of things happening at once over a couple of years. Although I guess at once at a couple of years doesn't make sense. Um, but when I'm this old, things kind of compress. Uh, again, seeing seeing browsers just get really really good. You know, I you know we were both there back in the old days, so like now they're amazing. Um, so being able to rely so much more on the clients to be able to uh, do stuff and also realizing that 
many of the sites I built with Cold Fusion, they were dynamic, but the data was changing like once a month or once every couple of weeks, you know, and I was still doing expensive calls to a database just to fetch something that never changed. Right. So recognizing that uh, there was data that was more static, you know, even though it was in a database, it was still essentially static. And that accounted for a vast majority of what I was doing. Uh, just kind of made me realize I did not need an application server. I didn't even need Node.js. That that was overkill in, in a lot of cases. And just to start to think of, you know, what is dynamic, what could be fetched on the client, what could be generated at build time with a static site generator, you know, just kind of think more about my data, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that I, I think that's a really interesting way to start thinking about it. And I actually had Guillermo Roche on uh, several weeks ago now, and we were talking about Vercel and Next.js and this idea of, you know, static first versus serverless first, which is what I think a lot of a lot of people are kind of praising this idea of serverless first. But the more you think of it, and of course, if you're if you're looking at it from a web development perspective, static first is a very, very compelling um, thing because it reduces a lot of complexity, like with a blog post, like what do you care about on a blog post? It's the content of the blog post, right? We wanna see that as soon as possible. If you've got comments and maybe a little offer that loads on the side or something like that, that can all be done after the first paint but you get the benefits of the SEO, you get the benefits of it running really quickly, you get the benefits of not having to call a, a, um, a database every time like you do with something like WordPress. So um, yeah, so I think that's great. So what what are some of those other things though that you then did, um, you know, sort of to make the, to, to make a, a Jamstack site or a, a static site have extra dynamic capabilities in it? So I've been working with Jamstack for three or four years. Uh, back when I started, it was the static site generators. Um, and pretty quickly, uh, services began to spring up. So I remember like form spree was one of the first ones I used where literally you would just point your form at it and then it would handle sing an email uh, yeah. for a form submission. And you know now we have like hundreds of stuff like that. Uh, so you know not having to do form processing, not having to send mail, uh, we have options for database storage. Uh, you know, there's like literally nothing left for me to put on my server except for the particular logic. So if I right. pick something on a dropdown, the form contents gets mailed to Mary, whereas if, if, if I pick something else, it gets mailed to Sue. And like, but everything else, you know, the routing, the mailing, that's not handled by me at all. So I write like three lines of code to handle that if clause. Yeah, yeah. Now I saw that you um, you were using Eleventy um, for for some stuff, which I just started using it as well. Um, so why why Eleventy over something like uh, Hugo, for example? So I think uh, all of these Jamstack options they have a different philosophy, um, and I think some engines are a bit more forgiving, <laughs> you know, a <laughs> bit more uh, loose in terms of what they allow. And I could see philosophically why you may or may not like that. You may like something that is more strict in terms of what it allows. Uh, I found Hugo at the time I was using it to be very strict. Um, I remember I was trying to build a um, JSON file and a couple of years ago, that was very, very hard to do. In fact, I just gave up, uh, ended mm -hmm. up outputting plain text instead. Uh, whereas I feel like 11D 
allows you to do anything you want to, whether that makes sense or not. Eleven E is not going to judge you on that. Right. Um, and I have yet to find something where I needed. Yeah, I've I've yet to find a place where it stopped me from doing what I want. Now, have I pushed some very ugly code? Absolutely. But one of the awesomest things about Jamstack is that I feel like I could do ugly, inefficient code during the build process. Yes. Because once it's live, it's a flat file. And right. that's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And that's something, too, where I found myself, I want to say, hacking um, uh, hacking uh, the 11T stuff a little bit to make some things work. Uh, but then I find that it works really, really well. Like even the data model that flows down, like if you have data stored somewhere else, but then you want to reference that data, like maybe within some loop that's happening there. And of course, the fact that you can do, I, I, what is it, support like um, uh, non-junks and like all these different yeah. template formats, you can do things in Markdown, it uses, um, uh, what's the, 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 the pre, I can't think of the name of that, front matter, in order to do the, uh, uh, you can put like titles and all kinds of information up at the top, you can control sorting, you can do all kinds of things like that. So I do agree, um, it is a little hacky, but it gets the job done. And I think the most important thing is, is what you're loading once you push that to production. Yeah. Hi everyone, I wanna take a minute to talk about New Relic. I know, when it comes to things like observability and tracing, you're probably thinking I should talk about Datadog, Prometheus, or even OpenTelemetry. And a month ago, I would have totally agreed with you, but New Relic did something a little out there. They literally reworked everything. They've actually been listening when people talk about blind spots, being stuck with a dozen different tools, or getting hit with hidden costs. So first, they went open source, making it so that you can actually instrument whatever you need. Then they made it so you can monitor your whole entire stack in one place, including your serverless workloads. You can use telemetry data from any source for ridiculously cheap, and there's just one UI with all the tools you need. Plus, they completely changed their pricing to a consumption-based model so you can easily predict your bill. Now, I love this pricing model because it scales as my cloud applications scale, just like with serverless. And best of all, there's a perpetual free tier with one user and 100 gigabytes per month totally free. You can try it and make sure it works for you before it costs you anything. So if you want observability made simple, New Relic is definitely worth another look. Check out their new platform at newrelic.com. So what else around uh, Jamstack have you been doing? Because I know you've used Vue quite a bit, um, and you also have written a little bit about Netlify. So where does like Netlify fit in with what you're doing with some of the Jamstack stuff? So they are essentially a Jamstack provider. So they, they allow you to host static websites, uh, but then they provide all kinds of really good features on top of that. So uh, they have a form processor built in. They have analytics built in. Uh, they have serverless functions built in, uh, so you don't have to go anywhere else to do any of those things. Um, so to me, you know, they, they are the gold standard in terms of where to host static sites. Um, mm -hmm. Not perfect, and you know, Vercel is also pretty darn good. You could use S3 as well, so you definitely have options. But I tend to compare everybody to Netlify, and um, you know, as like the gold standard. Yeah. And are you still using, are you still using Vue or are you building static sites that are using like um, server-side rendering or something like that? Or how does Vue fit in there with what you're building? 
so I, I tend to not use Vue to build sites. So I don't use Nuxt, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to it, but just my mental model when I'm generating a Jamstack is something like Leveny or Jekyll or Hugo. And when I think about the interactivity that I'm building on the client side, then yes, I use Vue.js, but I tend to not you know, worry about them together, if that makes sense. So like, you know, I'm, I'm building a website. It's going to have a list of films, for example, and I know I'm generating, generating that dynamically with 11 uh, and on the, uh, film page, I want this interactivity. So click for a uh, video preview or whatever. And I use view for that. I know that next could do that entire stack. Uh, but for me, it's, that doesn't click right. I'm not saying it's wrong. It just it doesn't right. click for me. Yeah, I know. I'm still uh, I'm still on the fence about static site, like where to use Vue within some of that stack. Because I love the reactive, or I love the uh, you know the the uh, the virtual DOM and being able to easily manipulate stuff. And if you've ever used you know uh, whether it's Redux or something like that, you know, in order to use the uh, the state management, I forget what it's called in Vue, but uh, it's very cool stuff that you can do if you maintain that state across. You know, you can do page transitions and stuff like that. Um, anyways, uh, interesting. But I actually want to go back a second and and go back to this idea of embracing that you know sort of this new paradigm. So. Again, if people know you from the cold fusion world, you wrote a lot of books. You were an educator. You can you continue to educate. You even have a book on serverless. We can talk about that uh, in a minute. But um, in terms of teaching developers, I mean, because again, I, I think teaching developers cold fusion was in a way similar to teaching people a little bit of you know because it was a little bit of a, a maybe a mind shift there. But do you find any parallels between sort of what you've been teaching with Cold Fusion and, and how you've been trying to teach people about serverless and Jamstack? Maybe. <laughs> um, you know, I I could not imagine how I would do a course now that was just welcome to uh, the web. Like I wouldn't yeah. know how to do a day one, like if you knew nothing. Uh, I would feel very comfortable talking about the Jamstack, JavaScript, uh, Vue.js, et cetera. Uh, but if you were beginning in web development, um, you know, that that's something that's actually been in my mind lately. Like how would I start my children on that? Uh, mm -hmm. But like, I, I would not know how to do that. Uh, I can say that for example, I think some technologies are more welcoming uh, to people of different backgrounds. I found Cold Fusion to be very welcoming to people from non-traditional backgrounds. I find Vue.js uh, to be a bit friendlier uh, than React, which is not to say that you know it's more powerful than React. Uh, mm -hmm. But in, you know, if you came to me and said um, I'm an English person, uh, English degree person, no comp sci background, I would absolutely lean more towards Vue.js than React. Um, so I, I, myself, I tend to lean on things that are a bit more approachable and a bit more mm -hmm. simpler. I don't find myself to be the smartest person in the world. So that, that helps that <laughs> some of the easier <laughs> stuff, uh, works for me as well. Right. So what about like the level of abstractions when it comes to, uh, serverless, right? So if we look at something like AWS, we know we've got all these building blocks. And I know that you yeah. uh, haven't done much with uh, like Lambda and some of those other things. But if you think about SQSQs and DynamoDB and and uh, you know and, and uh, just Lambda functions themselves, and whether that is you know whether you're using Netlify to do that or you're using something else, 
you've got all these different building blocks. So is that too complicated, you think, to for some of these people getting into web development and, and that just this idea of using Netlify or Jamstack, like does that create the right level of, of abstraction for people? Well, I think if you start with just HTML, then you're doing fine. I mean, that's how we started in the old days, right? Like, I really like Duran Duran, so I'm, I'm going to build a fan site on it. So they'd go to GeoCities or uh, MySpace, and they would have you know a small amount of HTML that that they could build. Uh, so I think you know starting with the Jamstack means mostly starting with HTML, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and typically you have a bit of interactivity with the template language involved. Uh, so I think that would be great. Uh, because you could even do Jamstack without any dynamic aspect at all, just right. to just to kind of get your feet wet. But is that something too? Where I mean, how many people getting into web development? Because I, I know I used to interview a lot of uh, developers not too long ago, um, and so many of them didn't even know what the cloud was, right? Never mind um, getting into any of the details. So is like that starting point there is you know it there's just so much to learn, right? So that, I think you're right. Like, what is that What is that starting point? If you were to say, yeah. welcome to the web 3.0 or wherever we are now, I mean, that includes cloud, that includes Jamstack, it includes serverless. I mean, how, again, maybe you can't answer this question, but how does that, what advice do you give to somebody who's who's just starting out? Yeah, I, th I think it's less about teaching the cloud and more about looking at a problem solution type aspect. So, mm -hmm. you know, I I have a web page and I want to put the current time on it. That that's a problem. And then you use that as a way to talk about JavaScript. That's a way to add interactivity to a web page. When it comes to the cloud, you know, maybe the introduction there is I want to put my website out there for people to see. How do I get my website on the internet? And you can talk about uh, Netlify and other providers like that that allow you to push HTML live. Uh, so you know, to me, it's more focused on you know, as you're learning HTML and, and building a website, what are the problems you encounter and then how do you solve those problems? Yeah. And what about defining serverless? I know you, you, you have interesting thoughts on maybe what serverless means, but just in general, <laughs> if you start talking to people about serverless, like where does that, where does that put them? So first off, I'm kind of happy that I don't think people are complaining about the name anymore because like for a long time, that's all you heard was, oh, you know, there's server still. And that was a voice that every person said it with. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that you have to worry about that anymore. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought, too. What was the original question? <laughs> No, I was just in terms of like introducing people to serverless, you know oh. what I mean? Again, I mean, we talked about people, you know, do you need to know the cloud? Do you need to know, um, you know, do you, obviously you need to know basic HTML design principles or things like that. But just where does serverless fit in there? Is it is it something where, you know, we're getting to a point where it's just that the, the term itself might have might just become synonymous with the cloud? Yeah. I think, I think again, if you take a problem and solution type aspect, so... There's something that I want to do on this web page where JavaScript won't work for me for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can look at serverless as a way to kind of solve that problem. Uh, Netlify has done a great job, and also Vercel, of just making it in the same package. So you're not going to Lambda, even though they're wrapping <laughs> Lambda, but right. you don't have to worry about that. So I still have like I have my folder, right? I put my HTML pages in there, so I use the same folder uh, to write a function. 
And so I would use that as an opportunity to basically introduce function as a service. You know, I, I need to write some logic that runs on a server. Here's how I do it. Here's how the input comes in and here's how I return output. You teach that for Netlify, you, they can transfer that knowledge to Vercel, they can transfer that knowledge to other services as well. Um, Cause then it's just input output and where, you know, what you name your file essentially. Uh, but then, you know, the idea of, I couldn't do it in HTML, I couldn't do it with CSS, I couldn't do it with JavaScript on the browser, I needed a server and this was my gateway to doing that. Yeah, I think that uh, that's actually good advice is, again, if you go down the static first route, is to think about what you can do without making something dynamic, like how often something has to change and then, like you said, sort of slowly increment and say, okay, now I need to add this bit of dynamicism, uh, dynamicism or whatever and, and start adding those pieces in. Um, all right, so uh, I want to talk about OpenWhisk because I know you did some work with this. I know you wrote a book about OpenWhisk. You don't use it anymore, but I'd just like to kind of get your perspective. Like, you know, what was what was that about? Why and why aren't you using it anymore? So uh, I think I first looked at Lambda, and I was a bit intimidated by it. Um, and I remember it was a bit hard to use from the command line. Like, I doubt it's hard anymore. Um, and I I was working at IBM, and I knew that we were we, we were participating in this open source project called OpenWhisk. And I knew it was serverless, so I took a look at it, and it just clicked with me. Uh, via the command line, it was very easy to use. It was very easy mm -hmm. to deploy stuff. Um, and I tend to gravitate to things that are easy to use and, and uh, quick to play with. Like, right. I could make a new file, I could deploy it in like one second. And at that time, Lambda felt like there was a lot more overhead to get something up and running and to be able to test it in my browser. So if I could play with something, and I, I had the same thing with Vue, is that you know I could drop a script tag on a page and play with Vue, whereas both React and Angular felt like it needed more of a build process. So I couldn't play as much. With OpenWhisk, I was able to, to play and build a crap ton of really stupid demos, but that enabled me to learn it a lot faster. Right. Yeah, no, I, that's, uh, and, and so with, with OpenWhisk though, you, you stopped using it, um, and you moved on. Um, and so what's like, are you still involved in that community at all? No. Um, I mean, I try to check on, uh, check in on it every now and then. Um, and I know like for my company, um, at some point I'm doing a blog post on using our APIs with OpenWhisk. I just, I don't hear anybody talking about it which I think is unfortunate because I, I, I do feel like it had a very easy to use approach. Um, I would like to see it get more attention, but I don't work at IBM anymore. So that's, that's, that's not my job to help promote it. Um, when I left IBM, I went to WebTask. Uh, I, I went to Off Zero where they had mm -hmm. WebTask, another very easy to use one. That product is now uh, canceled. And I think I was about to start looking at Lambda again when uh, Netlify added their thing. And I was like, oh, great. I don't have to worry about Lambda again. <laughs> well, Lambda is great. So you should definitely check out Lambda. Hi, everyone. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services, and tell you about a serverless startup success story that you have to check out. Whether you're a startup, SMB, or enterprise, 
AWS is building serverless for everyone. This startup story highlights how Freebird, a rewards platform connected to ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft, uses express workflows from AWS step functions to save more than 33% in infrastructure costs. The blog post also features a reference architecture for Freebird's data processing workflow so you can see exactly how they implemented it. To read this story, check out the show notes for this episode or visit serverlesschats.com slash AWS Freebird. Actually, this, this is something I'd maybe draw another parallel between Cold Fusion and, and Serverless is Cold Fusion was always proprietary right from the beginning, right? So um, you had to buy a license to it, right? There was no just download it and run it like you can with Node or um, you know with pretty much any other language that's out there now. Uh, and so it was very proprietary. And there's been this battle in the serverless community about um, oh, you know, the, the idea of being or having vendor lock-in, right? Like this idea of saying, oh, well, AWS owns my Lambda function. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm locked into using those. And, and, uh, and I'm wondering, do you think, I mean, I personally think one of the reasons why Cold Fusion wasn't more successful was because it was proprietary and it wasn't something that just anybody could use. It wasn't something where, you know, you could get the developer edition, but there was still quite a bit of work there. So do you see a parallel between that? Do you think that 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 there's going to be, you know, an adoption problem because of this, this idea of proprietary versus open source? So a couple things. Uh, there is an amazing open source engine for Cold Fusion called Lucy. Uh, it's been around for a while now. It has a great mm -hmm. community. Um, is it as big or as popular as the commercial release? Maybe not, but it's absolutely uh, good to use. Um, and there's been other community members and other companies like uh, Orta Solutions. Uh, they have CLI products where I can literally go into a folder and I could say add the you know, add the open source Cold Fusion engine here, and it just runs. So I'm not doing oh, wow. that kind of old school thing of double click double clicking the installer and spending a half hour to install Cold Fusion. So uh, the open source version has has done really really well in terms of making it easier to use. You know, honestly, I don't think the community is growing that much. Uh, I, I do think a lot of people have moved on, but there is definitely a uh, open source. Um, uh, flavor of Cold Fusion or CFML, if you will. Uh, in terms of lock-in, you know, I, I I don't do a lot of orchestration. You know, I know we're going to talk about Pipe Dream a bit later, uh, but this idea of I have like 20 serverless functions and I need the, them to flow in a pattern. Mm -hmm. If I was doing that, then I'd be worried about Lambda, uh, about lock-in with Lambda or somebody else. If I'm doing a couple of serverless functions, then I'm not worried. Like I know I can convert a Netlify serverless function to Vercel in like five minutes. I look mm -hmm. at their docs. I say, oh, they passed this argument instead of that argument. I rewrite a couple lines of code and then I'm good to go. Um, so I personally, I'm not involved with that. But again, I, I tend to build a lot of small demos and a lot of toys I'm not building yeah. an enterprise application again with those 20 functions being called in a chain. Yeah, so so speaking about that orchestration stuff. So tell me more about Pipe Dream. So I found Pipe Dream 6 months or so ago. Um one of the people from the company had emailed me and asked me to check it out and I didn't get a chance to look for like months and months and months. And then when I did look, I was just like blown away. I loved it. And so 
uh, Pipe Dream, uh, it's built around this idea of building workflows. So mm-hmm. I want to read data from a Google Sheet. I want to take that data. I want to find a particular row. I want to, and then I want to send an email uh, for that data. And then once the email is sent, I want to do a tweet. So all of those particular things, those are unique steps. They're uh, unique bits of logic. And what they have done is I, I built a system where they have pre-built like all of these steps for you. And you can literally like Lego bricks, take a couple, maybe have one step in the middle. That's your custom Node.js logic that literally does like an if condition. <laughs> it does yeah. like real minor work. But uh, like a real example, um, I have a Google sheet uh, that has like 10 rows of uh, URLs for pictures of the moon. And so it has a, a image URL, it has like a credit, and that's it. So I built a pipe dream that says read from the Google Sheet. So pipe dream, they built that logic. I didn't do anything. All I did was plug in what my Google Sheet ID is. But I didn't yeah. have to write any of that Node.js code. The next step, the select random, I wrote that. That was like three lines of code to pick random, uh, to pick a random index from an array. And mm-hmm. then when I'm done, I have a random URL and I have that random credit. I then wanted to tweet that. Well, again, Pipe Dream, they wrote that logic. I dropped that Lego break in. I say, hey, here's the input from the last step. This is what I want you to tweet. And I'm done. And it's all like started with a uh, cron-based trigger that, again, they wrote where I say, you know, run once an hour. So I have a Twitter bot where, you know, my my coding work was literally, you know, the pick a random row. And that's it. Right. Right. Yeah, and I've seen some other uh, I've seen some other companies like that. I think Paragon was one. Um, a couple of these other companies coming up with these sort of low code solutions that are using serverless behind the scenes because again, it's so cheap to use a serverless function here and there. And even some of that logic that you're talking about, like the crons and things like that, probably using CloudWatch Scheduler or something like you know something that was already written too. So they're just building on top of it. But that's one of the things with these abstractions that I think we're seeing a lot of is that people are building these new layers of abstractions on top of these serverless infrastructure or on top of serverless infrastructure. And you've got very, very low level uh, you know, abstractions like uh, the serverless application model and the serverless framework or Claudia JS or um, you know, some of these other ones or you know, even the AWS CDK that are building these. Um, but things like Pipe Dream and this idea of saying these repeatable things, these things that you need to do over and over and over and over again, why would you write that more than once, right? I mean, I again, yeah. when I own my own web development company, if I, I had to write so many forms to process, you know what I mean? And you're always writing these form processing yeah. things over and over and over and over and over again, and it would just drive you nuts. And I think that this is really interesting where we're finding this really powerful um, sort of paradigm under the hood, but then finding companies like Pipe Dream that are taking advantage of it and and writing those powerful pieces of business logic that let you just stitch them together. Yeah. Yeah, so I think so much of my work back in the old days was boilerplate, was setting up routes right. and, and stuff like that. And my work is getting much, much, much more smaller, but much more enjoyable as well. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a good point. So I, I'd love to ask you then if you see a lot, I mean, you're using Pipedream, you're trying to stay away from Lambda because again, you're getting what you need from Netflix, I've served Netflix, from Netlify and things like that. So I guess my question is, and, and, and I think if you're building full-on applications, you know, then you're going to need Lambda and you're going to need SQS and you're going to need some of that. But certainly when you think about the future of serverless 
from a web development perspective? Like, where do you see that going? Um, you know, I, I think it'll basically be, you know, what the browser can't do. You know, it's something where I can't trust a browser to handle this for me. I need to rely on a server. Uh, that's where serverless is going to, you know, kind of plug that hole. So Jamstack is rendering my HTML, uh, which we still need. You know, people still read stuff. Uh, we have JavaScript in the browser to handle, you know, 90% of the interactivity. And then there's, you know, certain things that need an extra layer of security. It, you know, can't be in view source. Um, and that's like the, uh, the, the last mile, I guess, the last bit will be serverless. And I'll only have to go there as a last resort. And I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of building out some of these things, I mean, they're, it's funny because now it's like when I think about building a new site or I think about building something, I spend most of my time planning and a lot less time actually writing code, um, which, like you said, I think makes things a little bit more enjoyable as opposed to just coding randomly and hoping things work out. Um, you can actually do much more planning and structure that way. So, um, all right. So one last thing that I'd, I'd kind of like to do, just because when you get two old people talking, um, it's always, and again, I am including myself in that because I was <laughs> I was back there in the early 90s with you. Um, the idea of, of, of setting up a, a, a site back in the day, right? Versus what we're doing now. You mentioned earlier in the podcast, Perl and CGI. Well, in order for you to get Perl and CGI up and running, if you either called a hosting provider or signed up for a hosting provider that had it set up for you, but if you were setting up your own service, even 10 years ago, let, let's just talk about that. What was, what was that like? So 10 years ago, it was a heck of a lot easier than it was 20 years ago. <laughs> That's also true, right. So maybe start 20 years ago and then and we can work our way through. So so I know, uh, you know, I, I live in a small city. Uh, there was maybe two ISPs. So we were on good terms with them as a web development shop. But uh, you would call the ISP up. You would say, I need a machine. And they'd get one piece of hardware just for you. And then they would tell you the FTP address, uh, and then you would FTP to it, and you would uh, remote desktop in if you were lucky to install software. And like this whole setup process was, you know, before you got the machine, in maybe a day or two. Um, now I think it was a bit quicker for us because again, that we knew people, but right. uh, if you didn't, it was at least a couple of days. Then you installed all the software, and then you deployed your site. So it was at least a week or so to get stuff going. 10 years ago was a heck of a lot easier because you can go to Amazon and a, and get an EC2 machine and, you know, have that immediately, but, you know, then install, <laughs> install your <laughs> software again. But I, I was so much happier about that because it was instantaneous. And I know at some point they allowed you to like define like what was already installed and you could just clone that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't really around or I didn't really play with that much, but uh, yeah, so like now, um, I tend to use Netlify for my real sites and Vercel for my quick demos, but at the command line, I type something and 60 seconds later, it's live on the web. Like that's nothing compared to how it was. Right. Yeah. No, I, I compare, I compare setting up an EC2 instance or, or, uh, I, I had a co-location facility. So I actually, or I, I rented space in a co-location facility. So I was buying servers from Dell, racking them, installing software, doing all that kind of stuff as well. So that's, that's my equivalent of walking to school uphill both ways in the snow. Uh, 
<laughs> but anyways, well, listen, Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I, seriously, I, you know, I, I was a huge fan of yours, still a huge fan of yours. Um, I appreciate everything that you've done, not only, you know, in the serverless community lately, but way back in the day in the cold fusion community, because I think you're right. There were a lot of parallels between what, um, you know, this non-traditional background um, and making it easier for people to kind of get in. Um, and I think as you've called it, democratize the web, you know, sort of get to that point where more people um, can start participating and sharing ideas. And I, I love that cold fusion and serverless are very similar in that in that regards or cold fusion and serverless slash Jamstack are, are, are in there. So again, um, if people want to get in touch with you, find out more about what you're working on, how do they do that? So I have a blog at RaymondCamden.com and I'm on Twitter at Raymond Camden and my DMs are open and I like to get questions. So uh, absolutely reach out if you have a technical question or any questions, fine. Uh, I'll be happy to try to help you. Awesome. Well, thanks again. We'll get all that into the show notes. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ray Camden for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, New Relic and Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com 64. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.